You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series called The Parables, presented by Bill Smith, a member of New Hope Chapel's teaching team. Look at the word parable. The, per- the word parable starts with this para, which means to be alongside of, side by side, like in parabola. Something's on the other side there. A paragraph, parallel, paralysis. And that's what a parable looks like. You might be more familiar with this double parabola here from McDonald's. <laughs> then we have the word fable, which is a story that's being told for a reason. And it's usually not founded on fact, it's supernatural or extraordinary. And, and the family, as uh, Justin was just saying, and Joe was saying as well, these are being told for a reason to teach some moral lesson. So we get the word parable by taking the word para and fable, and we slam those together and we get parable, which is a short allegorical story being used to illustrate some truth, a religious principle, or moral lesson that conveys a meaning. And here's the key thing, indirectly. It's always indirect by use of comparison, analogy, metaphor, and so on. So the parable is not always going to be a clear thing. There's always going to be something coming at us from the side or from some other perspective. The purpose is to strike the imagination, to get us to think. When I was first uh, becoming a Christian, one of the things I got the impression was we were supposed to stop thinking and do what or think whatever the preacher said. But as I more I studied scripture, God really would like us to think about things deeply and think through them thoroughly. <clears throat> so it's the peak of curiosity, get us to reflect. And so the purpose is actually achieved because of this indirect approach to telling the story. There are actually three types of stories in scripture. They're all called parables, but technically there's a type of story called an exemplary story another story which is called a similitude, and the third one which is called a parable. They're all three called parables, but technically the first two aren't truly parables. The exemplary story is really not so much an analogy, but an example of how we should live or how we should do things. And there are four in Scripture. We have the Good Samaritan, which is talking to us about how we should treat our neighbor, love those who aren't like us. And then we have the rich fool who thought that all his possessions were going to give him salvation. And then we have the rich man and Lazarus talking about, among other things, how we should interact or treat the poor. And then the Pharisee and the tax collector teaching us that we should not exalt ourselves before God. The similitude is a bit more concise. <clears throat> it narrates a typical or recurrent event from real life. It usually starts with something that people are already familiar with, something that is true. That's why it doesn't have a fable-like uh, tone to it. It's something that people already know or experience. And and no one in hearing it's going to argue with the beginning premise. And a lot of those are used to talk about what heaven is like. When someone who has lost a coin, we all lost something of value and we find it, the sense of, wow, I finally found this thing, you know, like the other sock and so on. And we have, um, heaven is like when the seed is growing. We don't see what's happening. It's happening all by itself. But when it comes to fruition, we're like amazed by that. Or we have heaven, the kingdom of God is like, and the, 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 the um, leaven in the bread. Now, the parable is taking a little bit different approach. It's longer and usually more detailed than the similitude. And it's, whereas the similitude is about something real in life, the parable is something more fantastic, fictitious, that people wouldn't be able to identify with. So there are these once upon a time stories that are being told. So with the parable of the talents, we can start with, and I was trying to get the Star Wars thing going on. But once upon a time, there was a rich man who summoned his slaves, and he entrusted his property to them. Then he gave he gave five bags of gold 
one uh, and two to another and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey, and the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathered where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And his master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So on first face value, if we told this is not a parable, but just what it is, we would say that this parable is telling us God wants us to double our money, and if we don't, we are evil and will not be accepted into heaven. I don't think that's probably what that's about. We could go to the next level, which I hear a lot of, which is this parable is telling us God has given us, given us talents, skills, gifts, and abilities, and we are expected to use those talents and produce converts or we'll be in big trouble. Uh, that might be true as well. See, what's neat about parables is that each person can look at them and see something different for as it relates to them. See, the problem with the second interpretation is that we never hear the master communicating any expectation, never communicating any responsibility, obligation, or any orders to obey. It doesn't seem right then, at least for me, that the master would get mad when there was never any clear expectation. I know some of you work in organizations where you have something called the annual performance appraisal. Right, And yes, when you find out there was these expectations of you you didn't know about, and now you're going to get beat up over the head because you didn't know what you're supposed to be doing. starts out with, you know, ten months ago you started doing something <clears throat> that irritates me, and now I'm going to let you know about it. Okay. So <clears throat> why was the master unhappy, given he would have even been happy with some interest on his money? Well, my reaction to this would be, what were the servants really given? Were they given expectation, responsibility, and obligation? Or were they given <clears throat> resources and opportunities and privilege? Some years ago, something shifted in me, and now whenever I'm in church settings and I hear people talking about what we should and ought to do and our responsibilities and obligations, I just cringe because I see really God giving us opportunities and privileges not so much responsibilities. In fact, I've looked up the word responsibility in the Scripture many times. I don't find it anywhere in the Scripture. I think God gives us responsibility, 
but he gives us privilege and opportunity. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. So it's important, uh, and I think Julie would be smiling up to her right now, because we need to know what the context is of anything we look in Scripture, right? And so the context here is that, and by the way, this same parable is told in Luke. It's slightly different. It's not a rich man. It's a noble man going off to receive a kingdom who's going to come back. Um, in Luke, that parable is told on the Mount of Olives. In Matthew, it's told actually in, in uh, Zacchaeus' house. Okay, But Jesus has already ridden in uh, through Jerusalem triumphantly. He's cleansed the temple, and he's getting ready to be handed over to the Pharisees to be crucified. That's when he's telling this story. In fact, it's about two days before all that's happening. He's telling this story, which then makes it a little easier to understand. But I'm sure at the time they were trying to figure out what he's talking about. Somebody's going to go away and come back is Jesus is going to go away and come back. So here's some of the things that jump out to me in this parable. There's other things might jump out to you, and that's cool. We have to argue about it. We can learn from each other, right? We can have dialogue. The first one that jumps out is each one was given according to his ability. So I'm thinking the master is sizing, sizing these guys up, and he's thinking he could probably handle five bags of gold, maybe two, maybe one. So God gives us each according to his ability. God gives us the resources he knows we can handle. Now that might be a hard thing to hear, especially if you have a sense of I don't have many resources, but you have exactly what God thinks you can deal with, what you can handle. In fact, there's some research that shows that when people win the lottery, for some people it's too much resources than they handle and they end up in therapy or in jail or whatever. Okay. So it says in 1 Corinthians, no temptation has overcome you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Well, this is another aspect of what I consider to be a loving God. So <clears throat> many times we pray for more things, but what we might want to be praying for instead of more resources is pray for more ability, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom to handle the resources you already have. This is what they call the prayer of Jabez, to enlarge my ability to handle what you want to give me. Because my sense is God wants to give us a lot, but he can only give us what we can handle. The second thing that jumps out to me is for the third servant, and I think a lot of us probably identify with the third servant, but that's not my message here, to guilt you into doing more for the Lord. I want to point out that he was fearful, he was worried. What are some of the things we worry about? This is where you interact with me now. This is the interaction portion here. This is what you pay the big dollars for. What are some of the things people worry about? Health, finances, children. More specifically, what about your health? Yeah, I hope I don't get too healthy this month. <laughs> I'm worried I might have too much money at the end of the month. What am I going to do? Nobody worries about that. It's what we don't want. It's negative. It's in the past, present, or future. It's in the future. Everything we worry about is in the future. It's negative. It's what we don't want, and it's not happening. But the very act of worrying about it causes us to experience it anyway. Okay, so I was at a church a few weeks ago when I was traveling, and the pastor said, worrying is the worshiping of our fears. Got my attention. I think if I worry about something, the very act of worrying about it somehow saves me, somehow protects me. I've prevented it somehow. Well, even if you did prevent it by worrying, you experience it anyway, so you prevented nothing. So the Bible talks a lot about this worrying thing, and never in a positive term, never as a command to worry about things. But don't worry about your life, what you eat or drink. Don't worry about whether you're going to die or not. Don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about tomorrow. 
Stop worrying. <laughs> worrying slanders every promise in the Word of God. I think God wants His children, us, to walk around as though everything's okay and He's in charge and on the throne and will protect us. Because that's true. <laughs> right? So, the other thing I've noticed about this slave is he was living in fear. It was very clear he says that directly. What we don't know is what's the attitude of the other two slaves. They don't really say that. We have to sort of surmise that based upon what the third slave did. So if the first slave was living in fear, I think the other two slaves must be living in the opposite of what the third slave was doing. So what is the opposite of fear? Well, the opposite of fear is love. Scriptures are very clear about this. I'll usually ask, what's the opposite of love? And people say, hate. Or I say, what's the opposite of fear? They say, confidence. But these are two polar opposite things. In fact, I often go to the extreme and say, there's only two forces in the universe, love and fear. Love attracts, fear repels, fear avoids. What did the third slave do? He avoided taking any action. So the opposite of fear, I think, is love. So the first two slaves did a loving thing. They were attracted to doing something with the money. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. Notice what the third slave received. He received a punishment for his behavior. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So love, the bar from 1 Corinthians, love is patient, kind, honoring, not anchored, nor proud, it doesn't boast. It protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. Love produces results. So I think one of the bags of gold we received is this one. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So if I'm living in fear, I'm living in something God has not given to me. I've gotten that from somewhere else. I've probably gotten that from life experiences, from watching other people. So a lot of different ways we can end up fearing things. What is it that we are actually fearing, by the way? What are we actually afraid of? I think one of the things we're afraid of is failing. If I try something and if I fail, what will others think? What will my family members think of me? What will others think about me? And so what we're doing is we're letting others decide whether we'll do something or not because we have this fear about what others will think of us. So the third servant who lived in fear was actually called evil. That was another thing that again jumped out at me and, and all the teachers all the same th say the same thing. You start studying something, there's so many things that jump out that you never looked at before. When you research into it, you see other things going on. So living in fear is being called evil. And so living in love must be holy. Holiness and love are the same thing now. God is holy. God is love. It's the same exact thing. So here's the deal. You choose. This is the one thing you get to do. We get to do. We get to choose. Living in fear or living in love. Fear repels. Love attracts. I just wanted to do a quick survey what you guys think about this sentence here. How many people agree with it? One guy back there. I think this is true. I think that woman, without her, man is nothing. See, what we all did is we all put our own punctuation in there. You see, it all starts with perception. That's where everything begins, and that's the choice we make. Is what's happening to me right now, is it good or bad? That's the choice we make. And once we form a perception, the perception becomes the belief. I now believe it to be true. 
And once we have that belief, then it becomes a thought, I know this is true, which then produces a feeling or an emotion because it feels true to me, and therefore I am going to do these things. Notice the word emotion is actually the word motion with an E in front of it. Emotion creates behavior. Now, <clears throat> many times uh, religions, in fact all the time, religions start with this behavior piece. Religions talk about how we should behave. You should do this, you should do this, you should do that. And if you do those things, you're a good Christian. The problem with that, just changing behavior, is all this, notice these arrows only go one way. So if you start changing behavior, the problem is all your beliefs and perceptions are still sitting there and you end up in what I call inner conflict with yourself. I keep doing these things, but I still feel this way. So the behavior doesn't really change much. At best it becomes a habit if you do it all the time. And you can look real religious but you're not being Christian because Christianity is not a religion. That shouldn't be new to too many people. So when anybody says, what's your religion? You say, I'm not religious, I'm a Christian. Then they'll get a puzzled look on their face, which is what you want. Okay. So we look at that third servant. He had a perception. I watched you reap where you did not sow, and I think that's wrong. So I believe you're a hard man. And I, there's my thought. I can't do what he does, so I feel afraid, and so I went and hid your gold. That's what he did, follows this model. This model is all over the place in the Bible. Once you see it, it's like, wow, God is always concerned with our perception, not our behavior as much as our perception. The behavior just becomes an indication of what you must have already perceived about things. The other two slaves were probably perceiving it this way. I watched you make smart trade. I believe you're a clever man, not a hard man. I, he must think I can do what he does because he's given me his resources. And so I feel trusted and therefore confident. And therefore I went out and made smart trades with your gold because you believe I can do what you do. We see this all the time. We can start out as, as Christians. I'm no good. And there's a lot of churches that I've left because that's all they talked about, how we are no good. Well, then what do I believe? I believe I'm worthless. So what do I think? Well, I can't do anything God does, even though I'm created in his image and his likeness. But I can't do what God does, so I'll just feel like a loser so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just keep asking for forgiveness all the time and apologizing for living. That's my Christian walk. Victorious Christians perceive things this way. God loves me and he redeems me. I believe I have infinite worth to God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I feel alive. I feel free. So I will love and serve others. So God is very concerned about our perceptions of things. So whenever you see things in Scripture like consider it this or think this way or meditate on these things, he's wanting us to shift our perception, which will naturally shift the behavior. That's why the Bible talks about the fruits of the Spirit, things that grow out of our lives, of our perceptions. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials and tribulations. I know there's many of you and in, in been in that situation where everything seems to have gone wrong. And when everything is going wrong, what's God want us to do? Yes, everything's going wrong. Now do that and watch them get even more puzzled. I want to have what you're having because it looks like you're going through hell. Yeah, I'm going through hell. I'm not staying here. I'm going through it for a reason. So I rejoice when things are going wrong. Now initially your reaction can be a negative reaction. Like Jesus cried as well and then he has suffered emotions. But once you get through that little pity party, you know what it's time to do. Look forward to what God's going to do in your life. In Proverbs it says, For a way a man thinks within himself, so is he. 
Um, I like the paraphrase version. The way a man thinks is the way a man will go. It follows the same model. So it's not your behavior that's going to make anything better. It's your perception of the situation that you're in. How you choose to see that for yourself. So I like this model, this be, do, have model. It's, it's also in scripture. I'll show you a couple of, at least one passage. Many people try to do the have, do, be approach. For example, in wealth, many people think, once I have money, I'll be able to do things wealthy people do and I'll be wealthy. It never works that way because they're always waiting to have something. Once I have a more disciplined prayer life, I'll be able to do more for others and therefore I'll be an effective witness. It's actually be, do, have. I am, which is a state of being, also God's name, alive in Christ. That's who I am being. I will therefore do what Jesus does because he thinks I can. And as a result, I will have a disciplined prayer life full of joy. So it always starts with the state of who you are, how you perceive yourself in the situation. So here in Philippians, this model is, is present, present. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, lovely, of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, because the way a man thinks, so he will be. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, do these things. And here's what you'll have. The peace of God will be with you. So it starts out with who you are. What is your state of being? Not your state of doing. I can go on and on. We don't have time because of Justin. But, um, <laughs> but I think you get the point. As many times people, if I do these things, I'll have this. No, it starts without who you are in Christ. And one more point here that jumped out at me. The master says, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. That's interesting to me. I've never thought about this before. What he's saying is, even if you do a slight little thing with the opportunities you have, that will reap some kind of a benefit. I think too often, at least I know I do, I always think I have to do all these great things for God. I always admire the people who travel and go be missionaries. But, you know, sometimes just putting a dollar bill on the plate for the missionary becomes the same thing to the master. So no matter how big or small you think you are, whatever little thing you do will reap a benefit. You're not expected to save the world. All you're really expected to do is take advantage of the opportunity you have to light up the part of the world in which you live. So God has given us resources, opportunities, and privileges of lighting our world. And there's a one of my favorite songs. Uh, I'm going to share the words with you. I would say the first two verses, but I'll start crying. And I'd like to get through one sermon without crying. And so the, the, the refrain says, To light your world and let the love of God shine through in the little things you do. To light your world and know your light may be reaching only two or three. Put your gold at least in the bank so you get some interest. Whatever little thing you can do. And God will respond and say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. And so that's the end of the story, and we will all live in eternity with our Father. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel's Located podcast. in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body larger of Christ body that spans that across the world. Across We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him 
follow him, to learn from him, to let him lead us and change our lives. We are his disciples and he is our rabbi. rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.